0: This is Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Taiwan-based electronics manufacturer Foxconn has qualified for more than $28 million in state tax credits, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. It's the first time Foxconn has gotten state aid since it inked a contract with then-Governor Scott Walker in 2017. The manufacturer did not qualify for state money during the first two years of the contract. The State Journal reports that Foxconn says it created 579 jobs and invested over $26 million in capital projects in its Racine County facility last year, which is enough to qualify for the state tax credits. The news comes as questions emerge over the billing practices of Foxconn project manager Claude Lois. Records obtained by Wisconsin Public Radio show that there is scant documentation for Lois' $28,000 per month salary. Lake Michigan is being salinated more and more each year. That's according to a new study from UW-Madison researchers uh, published in the journal Limnology and Oceanography Letters. The study used water quality data and computer modeling to measure just how much salt is being carried into Lake Michigan from over 230 different tributaries. And it found that these tributaries are bringing more than one million metric tons of chloride, an element of salt, into Lake Michigan annually. That's a trend that's been going up and is projected to increase each year under present conditions. The amount of chloride sits at about 15 milligrams per liter. It would take about 250 milligrams per liter to have catastrophic effects on organisms within Lake Michigan. Road salt is thought to be the largest contributor to salt pollution in lakes. The good news is that the state has been reducing salt use on highway systems over the past several years. And some communities across the state have switched over to other, more effective ways of keeping roads clear, such as brine. Some Wisconsinites are now eligible for assistance paying their water bills. Today, Governor Evers announced an $18 million program to provide help paying water bills for people who make up to 60% of the state median income. If you think you might qualify, call 211 or 1-800-506-5596. A Dane County judge ruled today that Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Michael Gableman must immediately release public records about a partisan review of the state's 2020 presidential election, the Capitol Times reports. The ruling comes in response to a lawsuit filed by liberal watchdog group American Oversight, who have been asking courts to face the duo to force the duo to turn over records about the review for weeks. Should Voss and Gableman refuse to release the public records, the judge ruled that they must appear in court next month to explain they cannot, why they cannot release the records. The ruling is another legal defeat for Gableman after the former conservative justice was ordered last month to release the names of the people working on the taxpayer-funded election review. The review is currently spending around $40,000 of taxpayers' money each month to pay the wages of those working on the review. Former Fitchburg City Council candidate Shanika Yumis has been charged with the death of Wisconsin Public Media Director Jean Purcell after a car crash in July of this year. The Associated Press reports that data from the airbag control module in her car showed she was going nearly 65 miles per hour in the seconds before the crash, more than 30 miles per hour over the speed limit. According to the criminal complaint, Purcell was riding his motorcycle near the Wisconsin Public Broadcasting Building when the vehicles collided. Purcell became the director of Wisconsin Public Media, which operates Wisconsin Public Radio and Wisconsin Public Television, in 2018. Before serving as director of Wisconsin Public Media, Purcell was executive director of the Wisconsin Educational Communications Board, which worked to oversee most public radio and television stations in the state. Yumus has an initial court appearance scheduled for January 6th. Today was the last full day for Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett. Tomorrow evening, the outgoing mayor will hand over his powers to the head of the Milwaukee City Council. That follows as Barrett is set to become the United States Ambassador to Luxembourg, a 998-square-mile country in Western Europe. Last week, Barrett was unanimously approved by the US Senate to fill the post. Before resigning, uh, by resigning before December 28th, the Milwaukee Common Council can approve a mayoral election this spring rather than needing to hold a special election, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. And now on to today's top stories. <coughs> After a years-long investigation, the State Department of Justice has won a judgment against a Madison recycling plant that they say was disposing of hazardous waste. WORT producer Nate Wegehopt has the story.
1: A Madison-based electronics recycling broker for that formerly handled hazardous waste must pay $90,000 for failing to properly dispose of mercury and seek further environmental monitoring of the facility. The company, Recycling Compliance Specialists, formerly known as Midwest Lamps Recycling, was found responsible for instances of improper handling and disposal of mercury dating back to 2017. Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call announced a judgment against the facility yesterday. The judgment is part of an agreed civil settlement for violating state law dictating the handling and disposal of mercury. Until 2019, Midwest Lamp Recycling was a place where retailers, like local hardware stores, could send light bulbs to be disposed of. That can be a complex process when mercury-containing fluorescent light bulbs are concerned.
2: And in terms of what created it, it really is the, you know, the, the actual crushing of these lamps that created the waste. So as you can imagine, different parts, different components go into lamps. Some of the components may contain mercury, certain powders, certain pulse parts of the actual bulb. Other parts of a lamp, metal, uh, et cetera, may not contain that waste. Uh, So there was a a crushing operation uh, involving some separation and some filtration uh, that ultimately uh, created uh, this waste that had or contained mercury. That's
1: Assistant Attorney General Tressie Camp, who represented the state to obtain the judgment. She says Midwest Lamp Recycling did not properly handle the waste from the crushing operations. And
2: the disposal of the waste from the lamp crushing operations Um, did result in some violations in our complaint as well. Uh, So the the mercury containing waste was sent to a landfill. Uh, There are certain facilities that can and certain facilities that are not licensed to accept waste uh, that is hazardous, whether whether it's mercury or other waste. Um, so ultimately, this mercury-containing waste was, was sent off-site for disposal. The
1: Department of Natural Resources led the investigation into the facility. They say that Midwest LAMP did not have a license to hold hazardous waste for any longer than 90 days, but waste was often held at the facility for longer periods. Samples from the DNR also show that the levels of mercury Mercury in the facilities, water, and waste were almost double the state's threshold for declaring hazardous waste, but that waste was not designated as hazardous by Midwest Lamp Recycling at the time. More than 156 tons of debris was shipped to Mallard Ridge Landfill in just a one-year period from fall 2018 to 2019. Some of that waste would have been considered by the state to be hazardous, a type of waste the landfill at Mallard Ridge is not permitted or licensed to accept. The complaint also notes that Mallard Ridge Landfill was the only landfill used by Midwest LAMP for glass debris because no other landfill would accept it. According to documents provided to WORT, DNR officials made a scheduled visit to the plant in June 2019, while in the office of the site, DNR representatives found that the concentration of mercury in the air in the lobby was higher than their meter was able to detect and higher than on the plant floor where the lamp crushing took place. No one in the lobby was wearing any form of protective equipment. While this judgment only deals with the company's policies of handling waste, it's not the first time Midwest Lamp Recycling has gotten in trouble for mercury violations. In 2015, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration fined Midwest Lamp $30,000 for failing to provide workers with protective equipment During lamp-crushing operations, and according to the Capital Times, the company had exposed multiple employees to toxic levels of mercury in 2018 after employees were found with headaches, memory loss, and difficulty breathing. At the time, they were cited by the federal government in order to pay over $25,000. The city, however, did not order any citations to the business at the time, stating the matter was a workplace safety issue to be handled by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. According to the complaint, state and local health officials reported in 2017 and 2019 that employees at Midwest LAMP had elevated levels of mercury in their urine. The LAMP crushing operation at the facility ended in November 2019, and the company has now moved towards becoming an electronics broker and transfer facility. But the company's shareholders, Tommy Dunn and Brad Zeman, still must pay a hefty fine by 2026. Both shareholders told WORT they had no comment on the matter at this time. According to Camp, the company also has to obtain an environmental consultant to investigate and sample residual mercury and phosphorus powder at the site.
2: So the the major component of uh, our agreement that relates to injunctive relief has to do with confirming that there is not any residual mercury contamination at this facility. So again, the lamp crushing operation is is no longer occurring, but recycling compliance specialists uh, with with the help of a consultant and in consultation with DNR, uh, we'll, we'll do some work to ensure uh, that there's no residual mercury contamination in at the facility, primarily in the hard surfaces of, of that facility, concrete, uh, etc.
1: Camp says that the search for residual mercury is a preventative measure to make sure the plant stays up to code. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate weggie
3: You
0: just for a it's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Well, the holidays are here, and nothing represents the holiday season like a Christmas tree. But according to the New York Times, in 2018, 80% of Americans who displayed Christmas trees said they used artificial trees instead of the real things. To learn more about the Christmas tree industry here in Wisconsin, WORT producer Nate Wegehaupt uh, talked with tree farmer Greg Hahn about growing Christmas trees here in Wisconsin.
1: I'm talking with Greg Han, Promotions Director of the Wisconsin Christmas Tree Producers Association and owner of of Han's Christmas Farm in Oregon. Greg, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you very much. So starting things off here, what is the Wisconsin Christmas Tree Producers Association? What does the group do?
4: So what the group does is we get together with... Um all the growers in Wisconsin. So about uh, half of the growers in Wisconsin belong to the association. And what we do is we talk about um, successful things that happen in our business and things we try to avoid. Uh, we do have pests. This is agriculture um, and, uh, you know, droughts like we had this year. So we talk about everything it takes to grow a Christmas tree from the first year to actually harvesting all the way up into the eighth or ninth year
1: so uh as a owner of a christmas tree farm yourself what does the growing season for a christmas tree look like how long does it take for a tree to grow
4: so it's about 10 years um we're planting about a foot tall tree in april and then from there um it takes about 10 years to grow Uh, a lot of uh, hard work in between we're mowing and fertilizing and weed control. Um, And then like this year with the lack of rain, we're also watering or irrigating.
1: As a member of the association, as well as an owner of the farm, what does this season look like for you? Has the farm been busy?
4: Yeah, we've been very fortunate. Uh, Live trees have just become very popular over, and it was even before COVID, Um, you know, six, seven years ago, the millennials and Gen Xs are really wanting to do things with their young families. Uh, The buzzword of agri-entertainment has really taken off over those years, too, um, that they want to come out to the farm. They want to teach their kids where things are made and produced, um, and Christmas trees are one of those. So we've been kind of uh, on an upswing for the last five to seven years, like I said, and then once COVID hit, it just uh, smacked us really hard as far as uh, the amount of people who wanted a live tree and get back to the tradition of coming out with their families. And it and it and whatever demographic it was, uh, it just uh, swept across all of them so that uh, we have be- been very busy this year and last year.
1: So now just a couple of days before Christmas here, do your farm still have any trees for people to pick up?
4: Uh, yes, we do. They're getting shorter by the day uh, as far as height wise, just because it does take a year, a foot a year to grow. So um, they are kind of a a shorter height now, but uh, right now we still have live trees that people could purchase.
1: Now, you mentioned the shift in attitude from artificial trees to natural trees, and you said that that's taken place over the last couple of years. From your point of view, what are some of the advantages of having a natural tree?
4: Well, the biggest advantage is that uh, this is a local economy. Um, This is something that was produced here in Wisconsin. uh, If you're buying it in Wisconsin, something produced in Wisconsin, all the money stays in Wisconsin, and all of the labor here is paid in Wisconsin. So it's just a local economy. Uh, You never see, you know, containers full of Christmas trees sitting out in the ocean like we've had of other things. Um, the other thing is uh, a lot of the Christmas tree farms uh, have great wildlife uh, refuge. You know, if it's a cash crash crop um, farm, they are turning the land over year after year, and the animals and stuff can't actually come into that kind of land where with a Christmas tree with a 10-year rotation, we're, we're very good for nature besides the actual oxygen that the tree is producing, uh, you know, to have less of a carbon footprint. So
1: you mentioned good habitat for nature and for animals out there. With the Christmas trees, how do you keep pests and things? How do you keep like something from Christmas vacation from happening to people? Yeah. Do, you ha- do you have squirrels making nests in? Is that a problem at the farm?
4: No, squirrels aren't. I think that was just a Hollywood stunt because I've never seen squirrels. We sometimes see mouse nests inside, but that's very rare. Lots of bird nests, but the birds are gone by that time. Uh, we have a product that it's called a shaky and a lot of the farms have a shaker so you put the stump of the tree in there and it actually shakes the tree it gets some of the uh, needles that are deep inside the tree that um, get those shaken out and you get any nests a bird nest will drop out every once in a while but yeah as far as those kind of pests that's just very very rare
1: so for people who like to keep their Christmas tree up for as long as possible, do you have any tips for how to keep a natural Christmas tree alive for as long as possible?
4: Sure. We're trying to educate our people, uh, our, our, the customers, uh, to make sure that you get rid of that old teacup um, tree stand. You know, everybody's seen those uh, waffle-looking uh, cake cone trees stands with those red pan and the green legs um, that hold, you know, maybe two cups of water. We're trying to educate people that we need a large capacity tree stand, something that holds at least a gallon of water. A nice live tree will sometimes drink up to a gallon a day. Um, Besides that, checking the water frequently, making sure uh, that there is water and it never runs out. If it does run out, you really should be taking your tree down and doing a fresh cut because just like pruning a limb on your tree you know that sap will be coming out very quickly now picture that on a larger cut right at the base of a tree and that sap runs right down and seals that off within 15-20 minutes um but keeping the water uh checked will will keep that from happening uh there are also good products on the on the market now with some research behind them as far as tree preservatives um there's a forest fresh product that's a tablet that they put in. Uh, there's automatic waterers some people like to use too. So there's some nicer little tricks that way. Uh, there's now a tree tray on the market, which is a large tray that you put under the stand so if water splashes. So we've tried to do a lot of things in the industry to make um, uh, the, the irritating things not uh, very more manageable.
1: So a Christmas tree, when we think of a Christmas tree, it's not just one type of tree. There's white pines and Bruce spruces. Uh, what kind of trees do your farm carry? And when we think of a classic Christmas tree, which kind of tree are we thinking of? Uh,
4: classic Christmas tree, Some it used to be in the 80s, classic Christmas tree was a scotch pine, which is a medium needle tree. Um, it's shifted now over the last 30 years into a very short needle tree, like a Fraser fir or balsam fir um, smell sometimes uh, lets people choose what tree they like. A uh, balsam fir has a li- little bettered fragrance than a Fraser fir tree. Um, so probably now traditional people would, would think of a Fraser fir as that uh, traditional tree.
1: Moving back towards the Wisconsin Christmas Tree Producers Association, I know that you are in charge of the Trees for Troops program. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, Trees for Troops is a great program. What we do uh, nationwide is they collect trees uh, all over the state um, and they uh, all over our state and then all over the nation. Uh, this year, they they gave about fourteen thousand trees to different bases. So those uh, trees are are collected at the growers. Then they are uh, distributed down all around the area.
1: And are those distributed to the army bases themselves or to the families or
4: uh, to the army bases, the families that are in uh, homes um, at the army bases is where it's uh, where they're distributed.
1: So, Greg, that's all the questions that I have for you. Do you have any final thoughts on either the Tree Producers Association or on Christmas trees in general?
4: Yeah, it's just wonderful that uh, we see such an increase in live trees. I think it's a great way to start a family tradition. It's also, I think, a great way to start a holiday season for the whole family to come together, pick a tree that's going to be in your home, and uh, it's just a wonderful thing to have live trees.
1: I've been speaking with Greg Han, promotional director of the Wisconsin Christmas Tree Producers Association and owner of Han's Christmas Tree Farm in Oregon. Greg, thank you again for talking with me today.
4: Thank you so much, and thanks for promoting live trees. We appreciate that.
0: The time is now 6.32 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you for joining us tonight. Nurses across the nation are facing increasingly tougher working conditions, with COVID cases continuing to surge and hospitals across the country facing staffing shortages. 8 O'Clock Buzz host Brian Standing spoke with Reina Laturno, host of the Frontline Nursing Podcast, about what nurses need to do.
5: If you were going to make a list of the world's most difficult and most essential jobs, nurses would be at the top of most people's lists. Long hours, difficult working conditions, high stress, and people's lives quite literally in one's hands. Not everyone's cut out for the nursing profession, even under the best of circumstances. But with the healthcare system struggling to keep up with a global pandemic run amok with healthcare union busting and a legacy of budget cuts, working conditions for nurses have deteriorated even further. Small wonder then that nurses who can are retiring in droves, exacerbating staffing shortages everywhere. Add to that the expanding health demands of a rapidly aging population and demand for nursing staff has never been higher. The Bureau of Labor Statistics projects the U.S. will need more than a million more nurses to meet demand by 2030. In such an environment, you would expect nursing schools to be overflowing with new recruits. Not so, says Raina Latorno, assistant professor of nursing at the University of South Florida and founder of Wires, wellness intervention, resources, education, and support. Raina Latorno joined us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Good
3: morning, Brian. Thank you for having me here. So, I mean, this
5: seems like a an epic crisis of nursing um, in the nursing profession. Is is this? uh, Are we seeing sort of a nursing Armageddon here?
3: So, we are definitely a profession in crisis. Um, I agree with everything that you said in the introduction, and we have an opportunity, I think, to really evaluate what's happening in our healthcare systems and to implement some changes that will that will positively impact us over the long run.
5: And one of the things that in your recent articles you talked about is that uh, there are as many as eighty thousand people who wanted to become nurses who couldn't because there weren't enough people to teach them in in the schools. Tell us about that. How's that? Why is that happening?
3: Well, what's happening is that qualified candidates are getting turned away because we just don't have enough space to be able to, to accommodate the students. Um, and this is a problem all across the country right now. The problem is happening because we don't have enough faculty. Um, we definitely have a shortage of nursing faculty. Um, we also have a shortage of clinical placements. And what I mean by that is nursing is a practice profession and a lot of our training happens in, in healthcare settings. And we just don't have enough space in our healthcare settings, which are so complex. Um, we don't have enough space to be able to take our students and our learners and to be able to provide them the education that they need.
5: So even with uh, all those retiring uh, line nurses, not many of them are going into teaching. They're just sort of leaving the profession entirely. Is that what's happening?
3: That seems to be what's happening. And, um, you know, to be able to come into teaching within nursing, you do need an advanced degree. Um, And, That would be either a master's or a doctorate in nursing. And the people who are retiring don't necessarily have those credentials.
5: One of the things here in Madison, uh, we have uh, a number of uh, nurses who are working with the University of Wisconsin health system. They're trying to get voluntary recognition of their union and the administration is resisting at every turn. How uh, how important are nurses unions to improving those working conditions?
3: So the focus of the unions are absolutely to try and make sure that things are safe for our patients and safe for our nurses. So, one of the examples that I can give you is that um, we hear anecdotally, a lot of nurses right now are posting their social media accounts that they're being asked to provide care to, to patients that may not be a safe situation. Um, we're hearing people report that they are maybe one or two of the only nurses um, on an entire unit or in an emergency department. And so the nursing unions really would try and... And to help the hospitals, be sure that those types of situations would not happen.
5: Now, when we talk about the healthcare organizations, or when we talk about the entities that are responsible for these working conditions, who are we talking about? We're talking—I mean—in many cases, we're talking about uh, private companies, but in some cases, we're talking about, uh, you know, for example, like university hospitals. What, who is the healthcare system that needs to needs to get things fixed here?
3: You know, that's a really good question, and I think it's everybody. It's healthcare. Hospitals, It's nonprofit and profit institutions. It's private um, physician offices. Anywhere that nurses work um, have an opportunity to to change that environment, to make sure that nurses have the resources they need to do a good job. Um, too often we're, we're hearing nurses need resiliency trainings, and nurses right now are being offered many, many opportunities for resiliency training. Um, and yes, nurses are resilient. But when we continue to put them into a system that's failing, they're unable to be resilient. Does that make sense? Do you know what I'm saying there? Or do you know what, I'm... what do you think? So, is Do you there... agree with that?
5: I, I'm sorry. What was that? You're asking me a question? What was the question?
3: Well, sorry, I was just wondering if you agree with that, you know,
5: is that what you're seeing in Wisconsin? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is. I mean, I mean one, of the, one of the questions that we're, um, you know, in, in terms of who the healthcare system is, I mean, the questions that uh, occur to me are, um, is there an inherent conflict between the idea of making profit on health care and providing quality care? Um, I mean, the U.S. system is a very profit-driven system these days. Um, and is that inherently incompatible with providing uh, what is a necessary service to people? What do you think?
3: So I, I disagree that it's incompatible, and I think that we can definitely make a business case if we're looking at nurses and turnover rates, for example. Um, the amount of money that it costs to replace a nurse or to hire and train a new nurse, and it can vary depending on where you are in the country and which institution, but approximately $70,000 would be the amount it costs to recruit and hire and train a new nurse. And then when we also factor in, if we had vacancies in the healthcare system, for example, a hospital, if a nurse had left, their position, to be able to replace that nurse, you would use that 70000 to hire and recruit and train, but in the meantime, you would also be paying a nurse overtime, somebody else to be able to fill that position, or contract labor, travel nurses right now are very popular across the country, so all of those costs to the institution, you um, can it's astronomical, the amount of money that the institutions are paying for every vacant FTE within their company. So if we look at being able to offer an environment which, which allows nurses to flourish and do the job to the best of their ability and to function and be well within that job, we would anticipate a decreased turnover and then a cost savings to the institution.
5: Are there places that are doing that well? you think, that are meeting that demand? Are there uh, particular institutions or healthcare organizations that uh, are providing that kind of work environment where nurse- nurses can flourish?
3: I think that there are. I think that across the country, um, there are many magnet institutions that are known for nursing excellence, um, but I think there's still opportunity for everybody to do better. Um, I can give an exemplar. At the University of South Florida, we are partnering with one of our our clinical um, affiliates and offering a program such that our nursing students and the nurses at the institution are able to participate in this program, and it really focuses on their well-being. And that's an example of an organization caring for their nurses, um, providing them safe place in time to be able to participate in a wellness program and compensating them for their participation too. So this becomes part of the organization saying, we value our nurses, we want you to be healthy and well, and we're going to support this program within our organization. And so that can be an opportunity that we can see implemented across the country. Um, models like that to be able to say the organization cares about their nurses, they give it, they give their nurses a safe place, they... they focus and encourage health and wellness, um, and I think that's going to, to really show them that there's the return on their investment.
5: All right, we've been speaking with Reyna Latorno, Assistant Professor of Nursing at the University of South Florida and founder of Wires, uh, the WIRES program. Uh, Reyna Latorno, thank you so much for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz.
0: Thank you very much. Have a good day. Bye-bye. It's time now for the Most Comprehensive Weather Report on the Airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure.
6: Well, things are a bit calmer this week than they were last Wednesday at this time when we had that squall line flying at us, you might remember, at 70 miles per hour out of Iowa. In fact, things are downright dull this week with a generally zonal trajectory in the upper air across the continent, a pattern that's going to throw weak systems past us at fairly frequent intervals over the coming five to seven days. More about that shortly. I did just want to observe, though, that last Wednesday's record high and low temperatures of 68 and 47 respectively resulted in an overall average temperature that was 33 degrees above normal. That's quite a rare anomaly. We were a bit cooler than that today with a high temperature of 24, which finally at least felt close to seasonally appropriate. But today will likely be the second coldest day of the month in what has been a very warm December thus far with a temperature departure of 5.7 degrees to the warm side. And despite today, that won't decline much going forward through at least the next week or so. Not only is the jet stream oriented west to east across the continent, it's also running a good bit to the north of where we might expect it this time of year. If you have a look at any of the water vapor imagery that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage in the featured graphics section this evening, you'll see the generally west to east trajectory of fairly minor waves Across the country that I was just alluding to, the waves are amplified enough to swing our temperatures up and down, but otherwise their speed across the continent is not allowing for much moisture involvement from the south nor any significant degree of warm or cold influx that's not immediately undone by the approach of the succeeding wave behind it. If you happen to look at the wider-scale water vapor view of the Pacific Basin in North America, you'll see the very amplified ridge that's out in the mid-Pacific that I mentioned on the Monday morning forecast. It's still out there, sending warm air up into the Bering Strait region of the Arctic and spooling the downstream portion of the jet stream down and around an upper trough off the California coast and eastward through roughly the U.S.-Canadian border region across North America. Passing waves in that flow will bring us passing bouts of cloud cover and light, generally form precipitation over the coming days before it appears the ridge trough couplet in the Pacific edges far enough to the east for the trough to get good footing ashore and begin to allow continental polar air to flow down here from northern Canada and begin to stir up more active weather as we get out towards the new year and beyond. That prospect is looking, so far, pretty good on the longer ranges of the global forecast systems model. But for the nearer term, we've got, well, if you're looking at the water vapor, we've got an upper ridge approaching now in the west-to-east flow, which will be warming us significantly as we go through tomorrow and Friday. We'll cool again over the weekend, by which I mean we'll be back in the mid-30s for high temperatures. That's still close to 10 degrees above normal before we see perhaps a more interesting storm swing past us to the south on Monday, though that will still be a fairly fast mover, though it may bring us some snow finally. We're going to need to wait for stronger overall amplification of the wave pattern to move ashore off the Pacific later in the week before we see any slower, deeper waves that might really wind up a decent snowstorm for us, but the prospect is out there. But back to tonight, low-level warm air advection ahead of the advancing upper ridge will stop temperatures dropping much past the low 20s with the aid of increasing high and mid-level clouds, which will start to thicken as we go on towards midnight or so. suddenly winds will come up to about 4 to 8 miles per hour. Low clouds will join the higher deck as we get on towards dawn tomorrow and kind of darken the morning hours. That deck may eventually lift and mix out, though it may take until sometime later in the day. High temperatures will reach 40 or so, possibly a little higher with some better clearing in the afternoon. Winds will veer more southwesterly at 5 to 10 miles per hour before coming down more in the overnight period. Temperatures will hold in the low 30s on light southerly winds and under thickening and lowering cloud cover. Friday, sprinkly rains are likely from the low cloud deck from time to time as a weak wave passes to our north and intensifies low-level moisture inflow on southerly winds, which will be up at 5 to 10 miles per hour that day. Temperatures will rise to the low or possibly mid-40s. Clouds may lift a bit overnight as the winds fear more westerly and a drier air mass comes in, but I'm not expecting too much in the way of clearing. Another weak wave passing to our south on Saturday may give us a period of either light rain or light mixed precipitation. That would be especially true for areas south and east of Madison. Precipitation should be lighter to the north and west. Temperatures will hold in the mid 30s on north to northeast winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour that day. We'll be in the mid 20s overnight and mid 30s again Sunday with possibly some uh, light snow from a passing upper wave ahead of an influx of colder air at that time. Just at the moment, or within the last hour, out at the airport in Madison, the temperature is 24 degrees, the dew point temperature is 7. Winds are out of the south at 5 miles per hour, uh, broken uh, overcast up at about 10,000 feet, and the barometer's been fairly steady over the past several hours at 30.01 inches of mercury.
0: Now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to December 1967, when the city had bad race relations, no budget, and a looming vote on Vietnam. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's Madison in the 60s.
7: All these come on. They melt Madison in the 60s, December 1967. A 13-page report from the Equal Opportunities Commission paints a disturbing picture of race relations in Madison, declaring, "Quote, racial discrimination undeniably exists." It was after a summer sizzling with what it called tension-filled incidents with racial overtones that the EOC held a series of public hearings in neighborhoods with large minority populations, hoping to gain some understanding and tamp down tensions. In late December, the commission issues its report, documenting more than a dozen racial conflicts all over town in 1967, including fights between white and black students from East and Central High Schools, vandalism to homes and cars of black families living around Odana Road and tokay Boulevard, and a white woman picketing the new home of a black family in Sherman Village. The report states that, quote, The problems of housing, disbelief in employment possibilities, and hostility focused on police are the peaks of an iceberg of deeper problems. Their causes lie in the long years of overt and covert discrimination. The commission explains that, quote, Discrimination here is not always direct. It may be very subtle creating situations where blacks feel, quote, apprehension, anxiety, and lack of freedom when attempting to find housing, employment, or service. The report takes special note of, quote, hostility and distrust of police. Police brutality was cited. Specific incidents revealed that, although there were some incidents of actual excessive force, the major portion of the incidents were again of a subtle sort, inconsideration, racial slurs, Excessive pickups, singling out, lack of an active policy of hiring minority group members, which would overcome a past reputation for discrimination, and general denial of the respect for the dignity of the Negro citizen. There is real fear of harassment and retaliation. A serious lack of rapport exists between Madison minority group members and the police. Rapport between the citizens, particularly the poor and minority group members, and police must be established. End quote. The report calls for the active recruitment and hiring of blacks and other minority group members on the police force quote, to dispel the attitudes created by past actions of the Madison Police Department, along with quote, intensive and extensive training and education for officers at all levels in minority problems. Noting what it called the quote, tensions, conflicts, and outright hostility which the public hearings brought out, the report acknowledges that the commission itself experienced that hostility, both from adult blacks who, quote, expressed pent-up anger as a result of their experiences of discrimination, and from young people, both black and white, who didn't trust the commission and didn't think it could do any good. But the hearings did have one bright spot, It was after the first night that the Madison Police Department changed its Help Wanted ad in the next day's paper to declare, for the first time, that it was an equal-opportunity employer. City government is also in bad shape, ending the year failing at one of its fundamental tasks, adopting a budget. The crisis began in September when the council, which has full authority over the school system, was about to cut $500,000 from the school budget. But 350 angry parents showed up at the council meeting, so the Alders restored the money, but now needed to pay for it. Mayor Otto Feske, who had raised the tax rate by 5 mils in his first two years and didn't want to raise it anymore, proposed a $9 vehicle registration fee. But there are questions about its legality, so the council rejected the fee. Then it thought about a property tax revolt and reversed itself and adopted it. But the legal questions had not gone away and needed a legislative fix, which the city got pending readoption of the fee. So, earlier this month, Feski asked the council to adopt a comfort resolution stating it intended to establish the fee at its next meeting. The mayor had to break an 11-to-11 11 11 tie to get the resolution passed. To prove they meant it, the council also directed City Clerk Eldon Hole to issue tax bills with a 48 mill rate, reflecting the added school spending and the auto tax revenue. Hole sent out the notices, and people started making payments. So when the council meets on December 28th, it knows it has to adopt the wheel tax ordinance. But Alder Milo Flayton, who strongly supports the fee, is absent, as are two anti-fee Alders. The vote is 11 to 8 in favor, one vote short of the 12 needed. The city has thus rejected a revenue source that it included in its budget. Feski pleads with the eight opponents to move for reconsideration and change their vote. None will. The budget, which has to be balanced, is a half million dollars out of whack, and with the tax bills already sent, the city can't raise the mill rate. Only one thing to do. By a vote of 18 to 1, the council rescinds the adopted budget in its entirety and refers everything to its meeting of January 12th. Anti-war activists were more efficient than the city, easily obtaining the signatures needed to place a referendum on the April ballot so city residents can vote on whether the United States should get out of Vietnam. With about 350 volunteers canvassing, the group Madison Citizens for a Vote on Vietnam collected 8,400 signatures, almost 2,000 more than needed. Residents will get to vote on the statement, quote, it is the policy of the people of the city of Madison that there be an immediate ceasefire and the withdrawal of United States troops from Vietnam so that the Vietnamese people can determine their own destiny. If a majority votes yes, it will become an adopted city resolution without further action by the council. And the greater Miffland neighborhood could soon be getting the second tallest building in Madison, as the plan commission gives developer Don Hovde a conditional use permit for a 17-story, 131-unit student apartment building just west of Broom Street between Dayton and Johnson Streets. Construction of the $2 million project is expected to begin in June. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6, Monday through Thursday evenings. Special thanks to feature contributors Brian Standing, Rob McClure, who will be back for our next broadcast, and Stu Levitan. Chuck Kademan engineered tonight's broadcast, Nate helped produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Happy holidays, everybody. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.